Good morning. Hey, if you are a guest with us or New Hope is your church home, uh, I want to thank you for being here this morning. Uh, each week we ask the church to fill out what we call a connect card. That's in the seat back that's in front of you. Uh, you can find one of those. And we ask each family to fill that out for a variety of reasons. One, it helps us stay connected to you. And we firmly believe that church is more than sitting in a seat watching a stage on Sunday morning. And so we, we would love to get connected with your family uh, to answer any questions you might have about the service, about the church here, about uh, becoming a part of this church family. In, in addition to that, on the back of the card, uh, you can put a prayer request. And uh, we firmly believe uh, that the elders of the church should be taking care of and praying for the church. And so um, on a very regular basis, on Saturday mornings, our uh, elders gather together, and we have the prayer requests that you put on the back of those cards typed up and sent to us, and we sit together and we pray over them. And it's an honor for us to be able to do that. And so if you have something heavy on your heart entering into this new year, uh, you have something that uh, you, you've experienced coming out of 2018, you have a praise that you just want other people to be praising God because of what he's doing in your life, you can fill that card out. And in a few moments after the sermon, we'll have an offering time. And when the tray is passed, you just put that card in the offering tray, and it'll be, get to us so we can be praying for uh, and engage with you. Uh, in addition to that, if you would like to learn more about our church, if you'd like to meet some of the elders, if you'd like to uh, find out about the mission, the vision, the values of this church, our beliefs, where we're headed as a church, where we've come from, we have a gathering that we call Starting Point. And a lot of people think Starting Point is, in the title, only for people that are starting out here, but really, it's for anyone that would be a part of New Hope that is interested in starting out, getting involved a little bit deeper at the church. So if you've never been, we want to invite you. The next starting point gathering, it's every other month, and the next one is January the 27th after this service. And so if you go on our website, you just sign up. There's a meal that's served. There's child care provided, and you have a time to just sit and really learn more about this place uh, entering into this new year, and we want to invite you to be a part of that. So let me pray for us this morning. Uh, again, a lot of prayer this morning, but that's why we gather. So let's pray, and we'll jump into Mark chapter 1. Father, you are good, and for that we are grateful. God, the text speaks powerfully to our lives. And so we wrestle with surrendering to what you've called us to. And so this morning, God, as we encounter your word, would you make it clear to each of us, everyone in this room, would you speak clearly to us? And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I read uh, this past week about a gathering of entrepreneurs in, in Las Vegas. Uh, this gathering was a leadership conference, and one of the main speakers at this gathering was the, the president or the CEO of the Lego company. So you know those torturous little devices uh, that your kids have played with, right? These little guys. Many a Lego has been thrown in my house, not in a playful manner, uh, as I've stepped on it in the middle of the night, okay? Uh, anybody else? Good. We're together. All right. Uh, at this conference, though, the guy had placed six pieces, just like these six, on every seat in the auditorium. And he told everybody... Uh, the purpose for this was to try to calculate how many different combinations you could make with just six Legos. And so he asked the audience, how many do you think, how many different possible connections can there be with just six Legos? And so some people yelled out, 150. Okay. Somebody else said, I bet uh, 200. One guy being real bold said, I bet you could get 500 different combinations with those six Legos. And the presenter said, hey, you're a few million short. But at the Lego company, we've done the research, which I promise I've not verified, uh, and he said that there are 915 million combinations that you can make with just six Legos. 
again, I'm not going to check his numbers. Uh, I'm going to trust his numbers that they've done the work to say 915 million connections, which is six pieces, just six Legos. And the point of the talk and the lesson that was learned in the auditorium that day was that what you think you have, what you think you understand, as you come to understand it more, it begins to blow your mind. There's so many more connections. There's so many more things that can come together than we ever thought possible when we were just holding these pieces in our hand to begin with. And I can't help but think, entering into a new year, that the same is true with this book. See, this book continues to amaze me. I've been following Jesus for 17 years, and he continues to teach me from this book. Connections are made that I just didn't even see before, and you continue to learn and you continue to grow the more time you spend in this book. And I think the trouble for a lot of people is that we make assumptions. Maybe you're like me. I do this. I assume that because I've heard a story that I know the story and there's nothing else to learn from the story. Or if I've sat in church long enough, I've heard most of the text preached, or I've heard this or that, or I'm listening to one person over another, and I just get bogged down in it, and before I know it, I think I've mastered something that can't really be mastered. I think I've understood it to the point where I don't have anything else to learn, only to find that when somebody begins to make more connections, it begins to blow my mind again. The text continues to speak. But what the text usually leads us to is not always easy, right? The deeper you probe, the more powerfully the text speaks, and it calls you to something. The more connections that are made in the text, the more you realize how this completely and totally personally applies to your life. And you begin to look at different areas of your life that the text is calling you to. See, we say this a lot around here. I believe that God is shaping each and every one of us into who he needs us to be in order to do what he's called us to do. And as he does that through the, the preaching and teaching and studying and reading of his word, it begins to call certain things where we come to this place where we have a decision to make. Will I or won't I surrender to what this text is calling me to? Surrender is never easy. It always requires a sacrifice of some sort, a giving up a killing of pride, a, a destruction of a preconceived notion, a surrendering to a truth that at one point we didn't know and now we've come to know. It's fascinating to me. Rich Mullins' close friend, the late Rich Mullins, had a very close friend, Andrew Greer, and he said this about surrender. The privilege of surrender is the liberation to simply let go. When we finally relinquish our obsessions, our pride, our white-knuckled need to control, we unbind the chains and unlock the door to our true potential benefiting not only ourselves, but also the entire circumference of community. I think surrender is the most intimidating spiritual challenge. I found that pretty resonating in my life. Surrender being the most intimidating spiritual challenge. I come to something that I thought I had a really strong background in, and now I come to know this new connection that's been made that I didn't see before. And now that connection requires something of me, and it's sometimes pretty difficult. This really speaks to our approach here at New Hope as of late to ministry and particularly to preaching. One of the lessons that I have grown to be so appreciative of in my time here at this church over the last 10 years sitting under my father-in-law's preaching is his attention and care for preaching through books of the Bible. And I've come to realize how incredibly difficult and yet beautiful it is when a church is dedicated to the preaching and teaching of God's Word. You see, it's not, I'm not saying it's easier or harder to preach topical sermons or to let your preaching be dictated by the latest news coverage, but what I will say is this. When we let the text speak, the text does exactly that. It speaks to us. 
it beckons us, it calls us, it changes us, and it asks us to surrender. You see, one of the hardest parts to approaching preaching and teaching this way is the wide range of life issues that the text actually does address and the timing in which the text addresses it. See, when we just, we, here at New Hope, and I'm just wanting to be honest at the beginning of a new year, we will be faithful to preaching the books, through books of the Bible. It's often called exegetical uh, or uh, expository preaching, where you're just going to grab a book and we're going to walk verse by verse through this book of the Bible because we believe that we need the text to speak and not us. And so we want to teach you the Bible over and over and over again. This is why you're going to, we're going to preach through the book of Mark for the next few months here at the church. I want to encourage you to grab one of those ESV study journals. You don't have to, but if you grab that, it's an easy place to take notes and to study this book with us. Just stop at the Welcome Center and get one. We're going to study through the life of um, Elijah this summer. We're going to study the book of Philippians this fall. We are going to study a wide range of, uh, of the Bible so that the Bible speaks clearly to your lives. And we're going to humbly try our best to communicate that with as much clarity as we possibly can. That's the approach we want to take to teaching. And as we study through Mark, you're going to realize, hey, like, what about these topics? What about these life issues? Well, let me just give you a preview here. The Gospel of Mark is going to speak to your money. That'll be fun. It's going to speak to your need to forgive people that have hurt you. It's going to call you to forgive, to, to seek forgiveness from the people that you've hurt. The Gospel of Mark is going to speak to your anger or your disappointment with life going to call us to love people sacrificially and really help us understand what does it truly mean to offer a sacrificial type of love. It's going to speak to family life and how the family should operate. It's going to speak to temptation, all kinds of temptations that you might be battling very consistently, even quietly, and the text is going to speak clearly to it, simply walking through the text. See, surrender is often the most intimidating spiritual challenge. It's difficult. And so heading into 2019, that's my prayer. My prayer for myself has been leading into this new year. My prayer for this church, our leadership's prayer for this church, for you and your families, has been, in 2019, let's just devour the Word of God. Man, I've been praying that. Let's just fall so deeply in love with studying and understanding what God is saying to us in His Word. Be a place so dedicated to that, that all other things become secondary to keeping this value of biblical authority central, that we would come to understand that a God-centered life, friends, a, God -centered, a life centered on God is a scripture-saturated life. It is a life dedicated to reading, understanding, and allowing that text to read and understand you as well. And so today, we're going to continue our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to pick up in chapter 1 where David left off last week. And we're going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 9, where Mark and his uh, telling of the story of Jesus, says this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So, as you study Scripture, I'm just going to do a really quick, this is not the only way to do it, in fact, there's a lot more depth but we have a limited amount of time in a sermon. And so to boil it down and say, let's apply a few questions, specific questions, to this text so that we can better understand what this text is communicating to us. The first question is this, who was it that was baptized? There you go. We're starting out strong. All right, that's good. You're like, wait, 
Now, here's why I asked that. Do you remember last week uh, where David said that the name Jesus was a very common name in that day? And so you have to really distinguish who is it that we're speaking of. I just didn't want you to lose that principle. Now, you understand we're speaking of Jesus, the cousin of John the Baptist. Okay, that's who is being baptized here. What's fascinating is that where Jesus comes from, Mark includes he comes from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee. And so what, what's interesting here is Jesus is beginning his public ministry. He's coming to start this ministry, and he's not doing it coming from this really great big city, this happening place. In fact, this was a working town, easily forgotten and oftentimes preferred to have been forgotten. Many people questioned if anything good could come from Nazareth. That was a common thought. Nazareth, what, what good is ever going to come from Nazareth? So Jesus doesn't start his ministry coming from this thriving metropolis, but from really this desert wasteland. Jesus doesn't start his ministry with a giant parade, bringing attention to himself, but a simple baptism. There's no party with all kinds of different food and A-listers showing up, but 40 days of fasting in the dangerous wilderness surrounded by wild animals going face-to-face with the arch enemy of God. It's a different way to start your ministry. So this is the Jesus that shows up to be baptized. And in doing so, he's affirming the ministry of John the Baptist. And again, last week, David pointed out that John was baptizing people with a baptism of repentance. And we'll talk more about that here in just a moment. But we understand this is Jesus. This is the Messiah who's being baptized. So let's ask a logical second question. How then was Jesus baptized? How can we really know this? Well, there's a few clues in the text. Okay? One is it says that he went down into the Jordan. That's the Jordan River. So he stepped down into the water, and the text says that when he was baptized, he what? Came up out of the water. We're doing this together today, okay? He came up out of the water, okay? So we know that somehow he went down into the water, and he came up out of the water. But there's even more to the text, okay? The word that is used here, uh, baptizo in the original language, the word that you would read in your Bible as baptized, actually isn't, it's not translated in your Bible, you're thinking, okay, what, is, what do you mean by that? Well, that word is not translated from the original language into your Bible that you're reading. The Greek word is baptizo. Everyone say baptizo. Okay, so this word, uh, when you were, if you were to actually translate it, means to immerse, to dunk, or to plunge. That's what the word actually means. And so what they do instead of translating is they transliterate, meaning they took this word, and then instead of translating what it meant, simply turn the Greek letters into English letters. And now you have this idea of baptized in your Bible. This word that shows up, baptized, baptized. It's actually a word that means immerse. And so if you think about it, the text should read, Jesus came to John, came down to the Jordan to be immersed by John. Well, let's look at a few other examples. In chapter 16 of this same gospel, Mark will write these words, whoever believes and is immersed. That's how it should be translated. Immersed will be saved. And so it shouldn't be John the Baptist, but John the immerser, right? John the one who immerses people. That's what the word literally means. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter on the day of Pentecost says this, And Peter said to them, Repent and be immersed in the water, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, why transliterate instead of translate? They translated all the other stuff. Why not this. Why did they transliterate this? And so you study church history a little bit, and you come to understand in the 1300s, there was a gathering of the church called the Council of Ravenna. At this council, the church in charge, the Catholic church, a pope decided at that council there would now be multiple forms of baptism that could be accepted by the church. 
What you know, though, is that for centuries before that decision was made, all they ever did was immerse. That was the practice. You immerse them into water, you plunge people into water, you dip them into the water. And so if we're going to be true to the text, each time that you read the word baptized, which it appears over 24 times in the New Testament, over two dozen times that you're going to read this word in your New Testament, each time you could translate it immersed. Jesus calls us as Christians to go and make disciples. He says, go and make disciples, right? Immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything that I've called you. Teach them to surrender to everything that I've taught you. Makes a lot, makes sense with that. So it's immersion. So the next question then is we understand who was baptized. We understand how he got baptized, but why was Jesus baptized? You see, John's baptism was one of repentance. Repentance means that I'm headed toward one direction and I'm going to turn away from that direction, repent of that direction my life was headed and go in a new direction. Specifically in the New Testament, it's going to talk about sin, meaning anything that you do that separates you from God, this sinful act or this, this difficulty I've had in my life. I no longer want to be that person. I'm going to repent of that. I'm going to turn and go this way. And people would come to John to be baptized for repentance. They wanted to turn their life around and go in a different direction. So Jesus comes to John, the immerser, the one who had been immersing people for repentance, and he comes to be immersed. And you might think, is he coming to be uh, immersed because he wants to repent of sins? No. The answer is no. Categorically, no, he's not. We know this because Jesus had no sin to be repented of. We just studied Hebrews chapter 4, and in verse 15, we just studied the book of Hebrews, and in chapter 4, verse 15, it says this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Again, this applies so beautifully to both this and the temptation in the desert. But one, Jesus, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus does not come to be baptized, to be immersed for repentance. So the question is, why does he come? Well, Matthew gives an account of this same thing that takes place. And in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew says that John didn't even want to baptize Jesus says he felt so unworthy to do this. I'm unworthy to even untie his sandal. I shouldn't do this. And he makes a really compelling argument. You come to be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus responds to him there in Matthew chapter 3, and he says this. He says, this is proper. Like, this is important for us to do to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. So the question is, what does that mean? What, Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. What does it mean? Let me summarize it for you this way. This was an anointing service. See, the baptism of Jesus set Jesus aside. Jesus' baptism was marking the beginning of his public ministry. It was uniting him with the Holy Spirit. The book of Isaiah said that the Holy Spirit would come upon the Messiah and give him strength to perform his ministry. That's my a summary of what Isaiah said, and this is what's taking place here. The Holy Spirit comes to Jesus to give him what he needs to do his ministry. And the, the baptism of Jesus highlights the triune God. It sets Jesus aside as God. You notice that it says that uh, Jesus, the Son, was there. The Holy Spirit is present, and the voice of the Father speaks. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You've got the Trinity present. And then it points to and highlights the Father. But in addition to this, the baptism of Jesus is also the beginning of a fight. It's a battle. It's an intentional battle and an engagement. This is why you'll read uh, more than uh, about 10 times just in the first chapter of Mark the word immediately. You notice, he says, immediately the Spirit then took him into the desert to be tempted by the enemy. See, this baptism marked the beginning of a fight that would go on and on and on and only end at the resurrection. 
He, he, would, he was going to battle Satan over and over and over again, and this was the beginning of that, this, this time to be set aside. So Jesus' baptism is unique, and it's different. And if you're like me, I ask a lot of questions. Maybe you're like, I don't ask questions. You don't need to ask questions. Well, let's ask a few questions together, okay? Why is Jesus' baptism different than ours? You see, we're all called to be immersed into Christ. What does that really mean? And so I want to apply some of these same questions to an understanding of what baptism is in the New Testament for us, because it is slightly different than it was for Jesus. So the first question that we would ask is, how should I be baptized? See, Jesus was immersed. What about me? Well, the question to to wrestle with comes back to our idea of submission. If you want to submit to what the New Testament teaches, then you would be immersed, right? Because every single time that that word is used, every single example that we're shown in the New Testament, baptism is being immersed into the water. It is being brought down underneath, completely buried in the water, and then brought back up. So to honor what the New Testament calls us to and teaches you would then be immersed as well. Now, here, let me be very clear with you. This is a, a moment where I, wanna, I, I really want you to hear me. My goal today is not to discount any experience that you've had in your life. Okay, can I be real honest with you? Maybe? All right. I've said some pretty arrogant things from the stage. In my own weakness, I've come on pretty strong at times. And so maybe that has been your experience here or at a different church. For that, I would say on my own behalf, I apologize. The goal is simply to be true to the text. Simply to say, this is what the Bible is teaching. I'm not here to say that what you experienced previously in your life is of any, any less value than it was to you at that moment. Many people experience something other than immersion. Maybe your parents had you sprinkled when you were a child. Maybe you were sprinkled in a different teaching of the church. That's, I understand that when people go through those experiences, they're genuine. My encouragement would be to you, now that you understand what the text is teaching, the question to wrestle with is, what will you do now? Will you submit to it? That's the question to wrestle with. So the, the goal here is to be pastoral. So we understand how baptism, it was immersion. The next question then would be, why should I be baptized? Why is it that I should be baptized? Well, let's look at Mark chapter 16 and Acts chapter 2 again. These, along with many other texts, but they're ones we've already referenced, so let's stay with it. The text says that we are immersed for the forgiveness of our sins. And after being immersed into Christ, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, let me be clear. Baptism, the act of baptism, is not what saves you. Right? The Bible is completely clear that we are saved by grace. Grace is a gift that you get that you do not deserve and you have not earned. We are saved by grace through faith, our obedient trust in Christ. So it's my obedient trust in Christ. I'm saved by grace through faith. What this text and many other texts in the New Testament teach, the moment in time that you receive that gift, the moment in time that you decide to receive these gifts that you don't deserve, is when you're immersed into Christ. See, there is nothing special about the water. It's not the water. That's why we can baptize people in swimming pools. Right? Just yesterday... Cody and Sylvia Adams, who we commissioned as missionaries from this church, baptized somebody they've been really working on for a long time in a swimming pool yesterday. Praise God. You can baptize people in bathtubs. It can get weird, but you can do it. Just like Deanna Lynn did last week. Having another person in her ministry in Spain, another missionary we commissioned from this church, baptize somebody in a bathtub in Spain. 
I was baptized in the swimming pool. My daughter was baptized this summer in the ocean. My wife was baptized in a baptistry. You see, it, it's not the water. It is the moment in time that God begins to do a work for you. So let me be bold, if you will, in an effort to be clear. I feel like there are many preachers who are very vague on this topic. And they give you just enough to not be crystal clear. And I think that's dangerous. And so I want to be clear on what the text is teaching. Baptism is about your surrender to God. It's the moment in time that you decide to surrender your life to Jesus and accept the gift that he's offered you. Many people teach that baptism is simply an act of obedience that you do after you've already experienced this moment. They will say, if you want to receive the gift of grace that God offers, you pray this prayer. They often call it the sinner's prayer, where you just ask Jesus to come into your heart. The problem that I have, that I wrestle with, with something like that, is that prayer is nowhere to be found anywhere in the Bible. It's not described, it's not given us, we're not given a single example of someone praying to receive Jesus. The words, receive Jesus into your heart, sinner's prayer, ask Jesus to come live inside of you, never appear anywhere in the Bible whatsoever. And so, when we make baptism simply an act of obedience, something I do after I've already received the gift that he's offered me, something I do later, then what we're doing is we're reducing baptism right, to something I'm doing for God. Now, there is an element of obedience in baptism. It would be illogical to sit up here and say, the Bible says that you should be baptized, but when you're baptized, you're not really obeying. That's illogical. There's an element of obedience when you follow through on this, but if we reduce it to simply only being obedience, we put the spotlight on us. And we say, here's what I'm doing for you, God. Again, the problem is every single time baptism is referenced or given an example of in Scripture, every single time the spotlight is always on God and what he's doing in that moment for us, forgiving sins, giving the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, it is an act of complete surrender. It is not only a picture of a previous surrender. It can't be, if we're going to be honest with the text. One more quick question. When should I be baptized? So the Bible's teaching that when we are immersed into Christ, that is when we are receiving the gifts that God has freely offered to us, then we would make the decision to be immersed as soon as we're ready to receive those gifts. As soon as we're ready to receive those gifts. As soon as we come to understand, this is what the text is teaching, I want to surrender myself to this. Let me give you two examples from the Bible. Acts chapter 8. There's an Ethiopian eunuch, an Ethiopian royal official, someone with authority, and they're traveling down this road in a chariot. Philip, one of the disciples of Jesus, sees this chariot and notices that the man riding in the chariot is reading the Bible, reading scripture from the book of Isaiah. And so he says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? The guy says, I don't, but it'd be really cool if someone told me. So he jumps up in there with him and he begins to explain to him. When he's done explaining what the promise of Jesus is and that the logical conclusion is to surrender your life to Christ, to be immersed into water, the eunuch does not, and please hear this with the right tone, he does not say, well, let me make sure I get all of my family. Let me make sure I plan this on a date that's convenient for my calendar. Let me make sure that the moment's perfect and enough people are watching it. He simply says, there's enough water right there that I can get wet in. Let's get out of here and dunk me. And he does it right there on the spot. Acts chapter 16, there's this, uh, the town called Philippi. We're going to study the letter to the Philippians later on this year. But the apostle Paul and his friend Silas are in a prison in a dungeon in Philippi. And they're down underground. And they're chained up, and they've been beaten, and they're really uncomfortable. 
and yet at midnight they're singing praise songs to Jesus. They're, they're just praising God, okay? An earthquake hits. Now, what would have happened when that earthquake hit, if they would have uh, fled the prison along with all the other prisoners, the jailer would have been held responsible by the Roman courts and would have been tortured, so he was going to kill himself instead. But Paul noticed that. says, hey, we're all still here. Man, we're not going anywhere. Don't do it. Then he shares the gospel message, the good news of Jesus with the jailer, and at midnight, not the next day, not when everybody was watching, right then when he understood what he needed to do, he submitted to it. He was completely and totally surrendering his life to Christ. He was baptized into Christ, received forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit, and his entire family did the same in the middle of the night. If it's just an outward display for everyone else to notice, why nobody noticing in Acts 8 and why midnight in Acts 16? It's because it's far more than that. There's far more going on with that. This past summer, uh, we were traveling in Florida, and uh, you know this story a little bit, but let me give you a little bit of the background. My daughter, Abigail, had been asking us uh, about baptism for a long time, and being that she is a preacher's kid, I'm extra cautious. She knows the answers. Her brothers, they know the answers, right? They can recite things to you. We're pretty intentional with the Bible in our home. And so when she was like, I want to be baptized, I want to be baptized, I'm like, all right, we got to make sure, we got to make sure. So I arranged for her to meet with her grandpa with a series of dinners, and so David could come and meet with her, so a different perspective. And then I met with her, and then I let her ask all these different questions, and, and I really didn't think she was ready. We're on vacation in Florida, and she just keeps bringing it up. And it hit me in a moment while we were on this trip. If I don't let her do this, I'm now the barrier between her and God. She understands perfectly what she needs to do to become a Christian. What would have been convenient would have been to bring her back here and celebrate that with you all. Honestly, put it on a calendar on a date where it didn't require all of our family going out to the beach at this inopportune time. Like, honestly, there was a lot of inconvenience that was surrounding the time in which we decided to do it. It would have been great to celebrate with our church family. We love you guys. That's not just this thing that we're doing. We love being here and would have loved to celebrate that moment. But the conclusion I came to in my mind was this. Let's let the party in heaven start before the party on earth. So we did. Just went out to the beach, baptized her. And it's a moment she'll never forget for the rest of her life. We came back here and we celebrated with a lot of you. So the question of when, the moment you're ready to receive this gift that's been freely offered to you, you should do it. And the text says, then immediately, verse 12, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was in the, with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the words that he uses here drove him out. So now he has the Spirit, and, and the Spirit drives him out. That's the same word that Mark's going to use later on to describe Jesus casting out demons. Same word that's used. It's this idea of a very intentional movement. So God is intentionally taking him from this moment. And what will often happen in your life after a commissioning service when you become a Christian is a time of testing. It just follows because now you have an enemy who's got you on his radar. It's just the way it works. Actually, as a matter of fact, a lot of times here in America, we believe that when you get baptized, you come up out of water. It's just going to be easy and fun. And I'm sure that it's a blessing and there should be joy. You know what they do in China? They bring people to Christ, they baptize them in the Christ, they come up out of the water, they're handed a manual that describes to them what persecution is about to start feeling like. Because they know he's got you on his radar now and he's coming for you. 
So Jesus goes out into the wilderness. It says he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. Old Testament imagery. Remember, how long were the Israelites out in the desert? 40 years, failing and failing and failing and failing. There's a direct parallel now. Jesus is in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights, face to face with the enemy. He's going to go to battle against Jesus. It says the wild animals were with him. That's intentional. You know that uh, during the persecution, when Mark would have been writing this under Emperor Nero, Christians were often covered in animal blood and animal skin and thrown out into the wilderness to be devoured by other animals. That was persecution. And they were feeling the pressure to conform to the culture and to abandon their faith so they didn't have to endure that persecution. So when Mark writes, remember, Jesus was out in the wilderness with those same wild animals, and he endured so you could have the strength to look to him for your strength so that you can endure as well. That's what he's calling them to when, when he does this. You know, this is only the second encounter that anybody ever has face-to-face with Satan. And the first time was in the garden, and Adam and Eve were no match for him at all. They lost. They were defeated miserably. But now, Satan's face-to-face with a much stronger opponent, one who completely destroys him. He comes onto Satan's turf, and Satan walks away the loser. And here's what's beautiful. The Bible tells us that the victory that Jesus claimed and would ultimately claim at the resurrection is a victory for us, for anyone who is in Christ, who's been immersed into Jesus Christ, can claim that same victory over sin and death. When he won, he won for us. Let me illustrate for you this way. Anybody watch football last Monday night? Let me word it this way. Anybody relieved to watch Alabama lose last Monday night? (laughs) Okay, right? Now, what I found fascinating is all of the excitement really around the whole country for everybody except Alabama fans, okay? The Clemson fans were like, it was like they were in heaven. Look at this picture. Look at their faces. That's the biggest smile any of them have had, like, in a long time because Alabama's a juggernaut, and they're excited. This is their second title in however many years, and they're like, I can't believe we're actually becoming this awesome team, and they're celebrating. You watch all these other people celebrating, and they're getting all excited, and they're fun, but let me ask you, does anybody in this picture wearing shoulder pads, sweaty, dirty, having come right off a field? Anybody? because I don't see any of them. They have no idea how hard that game was to win. They have no idea what it felt like to be hit full contact by some of the linebackers and cornerbacks from Alabama. They have no idea what that car accident felt like. They're just sitting there watching these guys. And so wouldn't it make more sense for only the joy of winning to come from the players? But it doesn't. And you know this as a fan, right? When your team wins, they win for you too. And the players know when they win, they're representing far more than just themselves. It's anyone associated with the school, all the alumni, the professors, the students, the fans, all the people from years ago that just couldn't quite get over the hump. When they win that championship, it's an incredible feeling for everyone associated with it. When Jesus went out into the wilderness and he won, that's the same feeling we should have. When he defeated Satan, it was a a victory for us, those of us who are in Christ. So the question to wrestle with that I will leave you with, that I've wrestled with myself is this. Will you surrender to what the text is calling you to? Have you received this free gift that's been offered to you? Have you been immersed into Christ? Have you surrendered your life? The answer to that question is up to you. Let's pray.